Okay. We are on page, my book 14. Starting with, we are starting the paragraph now. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. Because I'm teaching a bunch of black screens, so I have no idea whatsoever. Okay. All right. So previously we discussed how the performance of the mitzvahs uh, completes the picture of the love and fear of Hashem. And now what we're going to do is we're going to be switching on heads. So rather than the mitzvahs completing the love and fear, fulfilling the love and fear, now we're going to talk about how the mitzvahs are in fact superior to the actual experience of the soul itself. So he says like this. Now these three garments deriving from the Torah and its commandments, although they are called garments of the nefesh, ruach, and neshama. The nefesh, ruach, and neshama are three different levels of experience of the soul. Um, nefesh is a more immature sense. Um, ruach is a more developed sense, and neshama is the most fully um, developed sense. And I'm not going to right now go too much into the difference between them, actually not at all. But what they all have in common is that they're defined by one's awareness of Hashem and the resulting desire to connect, namely love, and um, associating levels of fear. And those make up the actual experience of the soul, whatever level the soul is developed to. And the, the mitzvahs, as we said, they're garments. So seemingly they're, they're, they're external and they're merely there to fulfill. Um, nonetheless, their quality, nevertheless, is infinitely higher and greater than that of the nefesh, ruach, and neshama themselves. Nonetheless, the actual mitzvahs are superior to the experience of the soul, its knowledge and its, and its, and its feelings towards Hashem. The actual mitzvah, whether it's a mitzvah done in action or in speech or in thought, is actually superior than the experience of the soul. The reason for this is explained in the Zohar, because the Torah and the Holy and Blessed Be He are one. The meaning of this is that the Torah, which is the wisdom and will of the Holy and Blessed Be He, and his glorious essence are one, since he is both the knower and the knowledge, and so on as explained above in the name of Maimonides. Okay. The idea being that the Torah and mitzvahs, which are called the, the, the Torah is the, the wisdom of Hashem, and the mitzvahs are the will of Hashem, um, these properties of will and wisdom, they're not inseparable, they're not something you can differentiate between Hashem and his properties. Now, what that means is that we actually have to rethink what we mean when we speak about saying Hashem's wisdom or Hashem's will. Okay. Um, to, to use a human being as, as a counterexample, you have a person, okay, and there are things external to the person. So we'll use an analogy. There is a person um, and there is a book. Okay. Now, that person can relate to the book in many different ways. So, for instance, the person can have a desire to read the book. Okay? That it is important for the person to know what the book says. Okay? So that ascribing of value, that desire, that importance that they place on the book 
that is something that links the person to the book. Okay? If the book didn't exist, okay, it wouldn't make much sense for them to have a will or desire for that book. Um, and the only reason why will or desire has any value is that it serves to bind the person to the book in the sense that they want to know. Okay? Then you have the person's intellect, their wisdom, their, their, their um, incapacity for seichel. And that actually is what allows them to know what the book says. Right? And again here, if there wouldn't be the book, it wouldn't make much sense to say that they, they, know, they know the information that's contained in the book. Um, and so what the will and the wisdom are actually doing is they're serving as a bridge to help connect um, the person with this external thing, say the book. And you can actually say this about everything, right? So you could have a dog, you could have the sun, you could have a friend, it doesn't matter, some other entity outside yourself. And the role of your intellect, your, your knowledge, and your desire is to, is to form a connection. And there's a difference between the connection of desire and the connection of knowledge, which I'll touch on in a second. But if there was just you, your pure essential being, um, and there's nothing external to yourself, it wouldn't make much sense to talk about you having knowledge or you having desire, right? These are, um, if you want to, if you want to think about it, um, uh, if you have like a physical bridge, a physical bridge you need when there's two sides of the riverbank or two sides of the valley. Similarly, the whole role of wisdom and and uh, knowledge and desire is to create a bridge between you and this other thing. But if there is no other thing, there's just you, then those properties, those capacities, they have no real value, they have no real place. Which means you now really have to think about these things as having, as anytime you have any of the human properties of will or wisdom or, or desire or knowledge, they're actually made up of three distinct entities, three distinct aspects, okay? Um, there's, there's you, there's the other thing, and then there's the tool that you use to connect in a particular way. So there's you, there's the book, and there's the tool you use to connect, which is your desire to know what the book says. Or there's the tool, the knowledge, the wisdom that allows you to actually know what the book says, okay? Um, now, that means that the entire process of, of these faculties takes place in kind of a, a, of a space that's an overlap between you and things outside yourself, okay? Um, it's, it's a space where you're interacting with the world around you. Now, if we talk for a second, and we just take the following little thought experiment. Before Hashem creates anything, what is there? That's an open question. I want someone to answer that. What is there before Hashem creates anything? Just Hashem. Just Hashem. Very good. Some people say nothing, and that's wrong. It's just Hashem. Okay. So then, if there's just Hashem, does it... Is there any place for any of these connecting tools like will or, or wisdom or knowledge? You want to say, can we say everything in potential? The answer is no, because when Hashem creates things, he creates them out of nothing, which basically the nothing means out of no potential, which is a topic for another time. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but the belief that 
the, the, the reality that was created was God actualizing some potential is um, heresy. So we're going to set that topic aside and bracket it, but no, it's God and no potential. It's just God. Not a potential for anything else. That's why God has to poof the world into existence. That's the technical philosophical term. Poof. So if there's just God, what's the role of a tool like knowledge or a will or wisdom, desire, right? We spoke about before that those things serve to connect you to something other than yourself. If there is no other than yourself, not even in potential, is there a place for wisdom or knowledge or desire as we understand them? That's also an open question. No. No. Right. So I will give you a little, a little, a little, uh, a um, little example to this. Okay. My twin brother. Okay. I have zero desire to spend any time with my twin brother. Is that a defect in my character? Is that something I should work on? Is that somehow make me less? But I have zero desire to spend any time with my twin brother. Why? Because he doesn't exist. Because I don't have a twin brother, right? Someone's been in enough of my classes to know that, right? I don't have a twin brother, right? It's also the same. It's also for the same reason um, that the fact that I cannot figure out how three plus five equals pineapples does not in any way indicate a lack of my intellectual ability because that's just not something that you can understand. It's not something that's understandable. So there's no way. There's no idea of connecting to it with understanding with knowledge. Okay? So if you are the only thing that exists, and not just in actuality, but in essence. Right? That's the difference. It's not that God actually is the only thing that exists, but in potential, all things could exist. That God, as far as I'm is the, in essence, the only thing that exists, then there really is no role whatsoever for things like desire and knowledge. Like, why do you need them? Okay. So, are we perfectly comfortable saying that God is ignorant? He lacks, he has no knowledge? Um, or saying that God has, has no will? Okay. And we're also not comfortable saying that. And the reason we're not comfortable saying that is because when we say that somebody lacks knowledge and ignorance, that seems to indicate a, a, a lack, an inability. Or if we say someone doesn't have will, it means like they're somehow robotic. Okay? So we have to, in some sense, say that God has will and volition and desire in the sense that he's not coerced or compelled and that God has knowledge in the sense that when things do come into existence, he is not unaware of them but we also can't say that in essence god actually has those properties in the way we have them because what we have is this kind of metaphysical tool that allows us to connect to something beyond ourselves, and god in essence doesn't really need that so then the way what the rambam says what Maimonides says is that well in our minds we would make distinct categories of god's essence and his knowledge and his will those are just different ways of categorizing in our minds what's really the same thing. Okay. 
Um, and you have this all the time where in our minds we have different mental categories, but in reality it's all the same thing. So I'll give you a classic philosophical example of this. Um, there's something called the morning star. Do you know what the morning star is? Anyone know what the morning star is? The morning star, when, you, when it's early morning, um, and most of the stars have already uh, disappeared because it's too light outside, there's one celestial object that usually is apparent very close to the horizon um, that is quite bright. And so even as all the other stars fade away in the morning, you can still see it. Okay? And then there's something called the evening star, which, why is it called the evening star? Because in early evening, when it's not yet dark enough to really see the stars, this star is so bright, you can see it. Okay? And it's at a different point in, in the sky. It's, 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 um, the, um, it's on the other side of, you know, one, I forget the morning stars in the east and the evening stars in the west, or vice versa. I don't remember which one it is right now. Now, it happens to be that they're the same thing. They're the planet Venus. So it's entirely possible for a person to have in their mind an awareness that there's the morning star. They see it. That's a mental thing they, they're aware of. They categorize that. There's the evening star. They've seen that. That's it goes in the middle box, in, a little box in their mind, right? And then they take a class about the solar system. They know that the planet, you know, and at least the way they draw the pictures, that's um, after Mercury and before Earth is called Venus, right? And in their mind, those are three different things. And what they're unaware of is that those are just three different mental categories, but in reality, it's all the same thing, right? It's the same big giant ball of rock in space, okay? And we have many things like that, that in our mind, we mentally categorize them as different, but the reality is it's all the same thing, okay? Um, now, why would we mentally categorize the morning star differently than the evening star, differently than the planet Venus? And the reason is because the morning star is, you see it in the morning, and the evening star is seen in the evening, and the planet Venus you read about in an astronomy textbook, right? And so in the context that you're relating to them are different, you create a different mental category. Okay. So when we have a mental category of God's will, we are trying to understand the idea that God um, makes things happen and God values things and that's not necessarily coerced or has to be that way. So there's some volition, there's free, it's free on God's part. And so we, we conceive of God having something like our free will, our power of will and desire. That's, okay. And when we think about God exerting his providence and, 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 and having, um, and being the basis of morality and goodness and, and, and and there, obviously, we have to think of God having some kind of knowledge and wisdom. Okay? And when we think about the fact that there is such a being at all who, you know, who, who we can see as the one who created the world, so there is such a being. We have to think about there's that being has some kind of essential state of what and who he is. So when you think about God in different contexts, you come up with a concept of will, and you come up with a concept of knowledge, you come up with a concept of essence. But really... Those, those distinctions are really the products of our mind. God is not actually made up of those things. Now, that's different. As a person, knowledge, will, and their essential being are not all the same thing. Okay? Um, I very much can experience you know, the arousal of will and desire. It's, it's, it's dying, conflicts in will. 
And that's distinct from growth and knowledge, right? We can learn and understand things. It doesn't change what we desire. We can desire things and our will can be calm, right? We have a lot of internal complexity. But for God, God is just one simple, pure being. And so what we, did, we, what we mentally would have in ourselves as myself, my desires, and my knowledge is three different kind of aspects. For God, it's all really the same thing. But when we're trying to understand God, we have different mental categories. Which means that if you and I know the same thing, um, there is a, or, or, or we desire the same thing, um, my desire isn't your desire. My knowledge isn't your knowledge because that desire, that knowledge is a mental tool we're using to relate to something outside of ourselves. And therefore we can know it and desire it in different ways and from different places because we're actually different people. But when we talk about God's knowledge or God's wisdom, God's knowledge and God's wisdom is it's actually just God. So it either is or it isn't. Which means if the Torah is God's wisdom, and the mitzvahs are God's will, then the Torah and mitzvahs are in fact God. Now this creates a series of interesting issues, which we're going to address later on in the chapter. But if we can just take this premise as is for the moment, then what is a mitzvah? When you do a mitzvah, it is not that you're doing an action which is completing and fulfilling your desire to connect to Hashem by bringing Hashem into your life. And it's not that um, when you study Torah, you're fulfilling this desire to connect to Hashem and bring Hashem into your life, but that this actual action isn't of itself an instantiation of God. It is, in fact, one this one the same thing as God. And to, to quote a letter of the Rebbe, the desire of a created being, even a godly soul, cannot compare with the being of God, right? We can't compare a human or any created entity which is fundamentally limited to the infinite being of God. So when you do a mitzvah, when you study Torah, if the Torah and mitzvahs are the wisdom and will of God, and that's one with God, then the Torah and mitzvahs are in fact truly infinite. They're, 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 there's no way to compare their value to the person. And to say that the value of the mitzvah is that it somehow completes and fulfills my desire to be close to God, my desire to... To, to respect God, it, 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 it's belittling, right? Because you're taking something as infinite value and saying its value is merely that it, um, is, is merely that it completes the picture of something of limited value. This is a bad analogy, but it illustrates the basic logical argument. If someone has, say, the Hope Diamond, um, which for argument's sake, let's just say the Hope Diamond is really valuable. Everyone knows what the Hope Diamond is, right? It's a really big diamond. And someone were to say, you know why it's really good that I have the Hope Diamond? Because now, when I'm reading outside, I have something to put on my stack of papers so they don't go blow away in the wind. Now, it is true that if you put the Hope Diamond on a stack of papers, it will serve as a paperweight and they won't blow away. Right? That is correct. But if someone genuinely felt that the value of the Hope Diamond was that it served as a good paperweight, I think we could all agree that they're missing something pretty important. So that the value of the Hope Diamond doesn't re is, can't really be put in terms of its value as a paperweight. Right? Now extend that a little bit more, right? Because at the end of the day, the Hope Diamond, its value is monetary, right? Now so imagine someone says, well, I have a, I have a, I, I have a, 
you know, uh, a person here. And you know what the value of this person is? Is that when they're standing, then they cast a shadow and the sun doesn't shine in my eye. Now it is true that if the person is standing, you know, and assuming that it's late enough in the day, so that, or, and they're tall enough, right? They will block the sun from casting a shadow into my eye, which is nice, right? But it would be very demeaning to say that that is the true value of a person is that, um, you know, they're, they're effective in blocking out the sun from, 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 from shining into my eye. So to say that a mitzvah, the value of a mitzvah is it allows me to fulfill my desire to be close to God, misses the point that the mitzvah is actually an instantiation of God himself. And therefore the value of the mitzvah is, 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 can't be put into a context. The value of the mitzvah is inherent, right? Or, or to put it in another way, what's the, what, is, what, is, what, what is God good for? What is the value of God? Why is God important? That's an, that's an open question. Why is God important? Because he is the reason that we are here constantly and that we have all that we have. Okay. That's an answer to a different question. That's the answer to the question, why is God important to you? Right? But if that was the answer to why God is important, then before you existed, then God wouldn't be important. Because to say that God is important because he is the source of all that you have, if there's no you... Right? If God is important is that he enables you to have things and there's no you, then God loses importance, right? It's like the importance of a cup is to drink from, but if there's no drinking to be done, then a cup is no longer important. If the importance of God is what he allows or facilitates for us created beings, then that means he is not intrinsically important. The actually the opposite is true. Everything else is important because of what it serves. Right? Everything else is created for a purpose. So its importance is in how it fulfills that purpose. Right? Or as the Talmud says, um, that the whole world was created for me and I was created to serve my master, created to serve God. But what make God has intrinsic importance. God's, God's importance doesn't, isn't, isn't limited to a particular context. God's importance is, is infinite. In fact, you could even put it this way, that God isn't important in the sense that everything else is important. Everything else is important in the sense that it it fills a role. God is the source of importance for everything. Everything is important because of what it serves for God. So if a mitzvah is God, a mitzvah is the will of Hashem, the Torah is the wisdom of Hashem, and the wisdom and will of Hashem are one with Him. They are Him. Well, then that means that the real value of the mitzvah is the mitzvah. The real value of the Torah is the Torah. It's not what it achieves or what it facilitates what it accomplishes. And so now, by the way, if you think about this, the reverse would be the case. It's not that the mitzvah um, is something that's there to help you fulfill your desire to be close to God, um, but the mitzvah has some kind of intrinsic, infinite value in its own right, and you are lucky enough to actually get to connect with it, to partake of it. Right. Um, there's a there's a there's a a 
a difficulty that people often have, which is that when we think of things being important, we tend to orient ourselves relative to ourselves. Why is something important? Because of what it does for me. Or we broaden that out, not for me, but for my group or my society or my reality, right? If we're broad-minded enough. But what this is saying is that the actual value of the mitzvah is not the role that it serves, but the mitzvah is God. Now, this, this, again, this creates a bunch of other problems which we're going to get into. So now, what we would have to say is that it's not really that the importance of the mitzvah is that if someone loves God, the only way to really connect them is to do a mitzvah. If someone fears God, the only way to really manifest that is to not do an avera, not to sin. We actually have to say that doing a mitzvah has a value in and of itself, independent of whether you feel you're connected. Obviously, for the reason Alter was telling this is because it would be better if you did appreciate that. Right? The idea is that it's not unimportant that you appreciate that, but the different. But the idea is that its importance doesn't derive from your appreciating. There's a a, a, a I might have mentioned this before. There's a, a line that um, was often said to Bahram in Yeshiva, okay? which is, what is the right attitude to have? That you should, that you should um, love your spouse because they're your spouse, love your wife because she's your wife, or she should be your wife because you love her. Like, which way should the causality go? Right? Now, if you think about this for a minute, there's a very important distinction, right? What happens if the love stops? If you follow the first approach, you should love her because she's your wife, then if the love stops, what then does that create an obligation for you to do? Love her anyway. Well, right. Well, yeah. So love her anyway, which is obviously, you know, it's not like a button, you know, that you like type in a secret code, right? You have to work on that, but it creates an obligation to work on loving her, right? On the other hand, if you take the second approach and the love stops, then what is the logical consequence? If she's your wife because you love her and the love stops, what will be the logical consequence? Divorce. Divorce, Chas Divorce, Chas Okay. Now let's put, now let's, now let's run, let's just run through the other way. Okay. If you should love her because she's your wife, using that, okay, then does that, what are you looking for when you're dating? A wife. A wife, right? Is this a person who could be who could, who could, who could be my wife? Which is an interesting question what that means, right? That, that's an open question. That, that really changes the question. Like, I'm looking for a wife. Is this person who could be my wife, right? And one of the ways to kind of rephrase that question is this, is, you know, again, this is what Sajid said to Bachram is, is this somebody that I would be a husband to, right? And you, 
you're, you're thinking about it in terms of how could you actually build that kind of family relationship. On the other hand, if you take the second approach, what are you looking for um, when you're dating? Love. You love the person. Now, I think it's fairly obvious that you can love plenty of people that you would not be do a good job building a family with. Right? So this idea, so it's not that one is important and the other is not important. It's just that the causality of how the importance should flow is, very, is different, right? That, of course, love is important. But is the love there to complete the importance of, of, of the relationship of husband and wife? And therefore, the, 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 the primary focus on the importance is that relationship itself. Is this person the one I could have that relationship with? And now that I have that relationship, do I value it enough to actually do the things necessary to make it work, including arousing and maintaining feelings of love? Or is the relationship meant to um, give some sort of social standing and, and some sort of uh, a, a manifestation of the feeling of love? And so the altar is saying here is a similar kind of thing. It is true from your experience of doing the mitzvah, it very much can feel like that the, what the mitzvah accomplishes is it fulfills my desire to be close to Hashem. But when a person gets caught up in that, they fail to realize that a mitzvah actually is, is Hashem. A mitzvah actually is, is the, the, the wisdom and will of Hashem, which is Him, actually being present in the world. And the gravity of that, the significance of that, the profundity of that, has a, 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 should, should carry weight with the person independent of how they feel about it. And on the contrary, that itself demands that you should arousal of feeling. So it's not that feeling isn't important, but, the, but the, instead of the feeling being um, based on my awareness of God and my desire to be with him in the mitzvah completing that, it's the mitzvah actually is, 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 is God. And the fact that God is here and I, 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 I'm able to, to be in his presence, that itself should therefore arouse feelings of appreciation and respect and desire, etc. And so now what we're saying is that the real significance, objectively speaking, works in the reverse. It's the mitzvah, and in order for the person to really appreciate that, there has to be feeling. But the value of the mitzvah does not derive from your feeling. Because the value of God does not derive from his creation. You do not give value to God. God gives value to you. And if the mitzvah is God and your feelings are you, so then the, the, the causality works. The mitzvah is valuable and your feelings should reflect it. Not your feelings are valuable and the mitzvah fulfills them. Okay. So are there any questions on this basic idea before we, we, we move forward in the chapter and start dealing with some of the complications that this creates? Nope, okay. All right. Now, and although the Holy One, blessed be he, is called Ain Sof Infinite, and his greatness can never be fathomed, and no thought can comprehend him at all, and so to our his will and his wisdom, as it is written, there is no searching of his understanding, and can you find God by searching? And again, my thoughts are not your thoughts. So we have a problem, which is if the Torah and mitzvahs are one with God, and God is infinite, then they are infinite. And if they are infinite, how can you, a finite being, actually participate in the Torah and mitzvahs? 
Well, we make this actually. Um, We, if we, if we, if we, there's a, there's going to be a separate question later, but if we, we, we make this question a little bit more concrete for a moment. Let's use the example of learning something. It is unreasonable to, for someone to say that I want to connect to my three-year-old, so I'm going to have a philosophical discussion about the nature of quantum mechanics and free will with my three-year-old, right? We'll all accept that that's unreasonable. Okay. Why? Like, break that down, like, like, and analyze it. What about that is unreasonable? It's beyond their level of understanding. It's beyond their level of understanding. Now, so, I'm going to then counter and say, but isn't it true that anytime you learn something, you're encountering something that's beyond your level of understanding? Beyond your capacity to learn. So couldn't we just teach them? You're, they're lacking fundamental abilities to be able to um, comprehend it. Okay. Right. Right. So, so we have to do is we have to, we have to be a little bit more precise and says there's, there's, there's beyond your capacity for understanding. Right. Right. It's, Right, there's, there's the level of your understanding in actuality, but there's also your capacity for understanding. Okay. So you cannot, what this means is that you cannot share something that you have if the recipient does not have the capacity to receive it. Okay, so I'm gonna give you a very simple example that illustrates this difference. If you have income, can you share that with someone who lacks income? Yes, we can all agree with that? Okay. If you have wealth, can you necessarily share that with someone who lacks wealth? By the way, this is a test if you know the difference between income and wealth. You mean financial wealth? Yes, financial wealth. Yeah, you can. You just can't give them all your wealth. Well, that doesn't mean giving all the wealth. But even if you want to, can if you have wealth, can you net, can you give them wealth? I, I would say no. I would say no because um, wealth is something that like is like it inherently belongs to you. Like it is linked to you. I think. Right. Okay. So the difference between wealth and income is important. Wealth income means that you have money that comes to you, and now you can spend it. Okay. Wealth means you have assets at your disposal that give you a solid financial foundation that you can sit on top of. Okay. If I give you, for instance, a million dollars, okay, you just have an income of a million dollars now, one-time income of a million dollars, right? And even if I give you a million dollars every month, so you now have an irregular income of a million dollars, right? We have now a problem, which is that what happens if you take someone who's never used to making a million dollars and you start giving them a million dollars? What happens? What do they start doing? They start spending that million dollars, right? And what happens when that whole system collapses? They end up with actually being in a very precarious financial situation. This is like the, the common thing that you see that say people that win the lottery 
don't end up creating usually wealth. Um, giving people lots of money um, without giving them other tools, they often just spend the money. Right? Building wealth means not, not just having money come to you, but actually knowing what to do with the money so that your money turns into more money. Okay. Um, so a simple example, if you spend all of your money on um, experiences, vacations, right, it disappears, right? Whereas if you invest your money in, say, um, a diversified portfolio, right, that pays good dividends, right, your money turns into more money, right? Now, so it's a very different thing to give a person income than give a person wealth, because to give a person income, all I have to do is take the cash out of my pocket and put it into your pocket, right? So what kind of capacity does the recipient need? They need to have the capacity to receive money, to receive cash, right? Which is somewhat complicated, right? You need to have like a bank account to be able to cash a check or be physically present to hold the bills, whatever the case might be, right? There are some limitations, right? I mean, you have to be legally, you know, a legal entity, right? You can't give money to a rock. Okay. Um, but if you want to give someone wealth, you actually have to do a lot more because that person needs to develop, um, that, that person needs to have knowledge, they need to have access to resources, right? That, that's actually a lot more of a complicated thing, right? So you can take a person who's, let's say, they're too ignorant and too impulsive and too arrogant, and it doesn't matter how much money you give them, they won't be able to actually turn that into wealth because they're unwilling, un, unwilling and unable um, right. Or for instance, they live in an economy where those kinds of investment opportunities don't exist. Right. If I, you know, if a person, if a person lives in some kind of a, 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 a more limited economic circumstances, right. There's no, there's no stock market to invest in, no, no properties to invest in. You can't get take out, you know, annuities, insurances and things like, like, so it doesn't matter that you have all this money, right. But you're going to, you can't, it's hard to turn that into something. So it's not enough that you have something and are willing to share it. The recipient has to have the same basic capacities that you do in order to receive it. Okay. And that's actually what makes sharing quite difficult. Right? And what you'll notice is that the more external and transient the thing you want to share, the easier it is to share, right? That's why I chose the difference between income and wealth. Income is money in, money out. Whereas wealth is something you actually have to build and entrench. And so sharing income is actually easier than sharing wealth. Because sharing wealth means you actually have to develop the capacities to have wealth in the recipient. So now getting back to this, this issue, if God, if the Torah and mitzvahs are his will and wisdom, and his will and wisdom are him, and he is infinite, and that means in order to have the Torah and have the mitzvahs, you have to be, have the capacity to have something infinite, right? And us finite creations, we have a problem here. How can a finite creation, a finite being, even the godly soul, as much as it's godly at its core, but its actual functionality, its actual presence in the world is limited, how can a limited being have the capacity to contain something infinite? Right? And so we have a problem. God should not be able to share the Torah mitzvahs with us. Right? God should seemingly lack the capacity, the ability to share the mitzvahs and the Torah with us because we don't have the capacity to have them. To have something infinite means to be infinite. 
And if I am not infinite, how can I therefore receive the infinite? Now, if I understand the Torah mitzvahs as a finite gift by an infinite God, I don't have this problem. Right? So if I think of the Torah mitzvahs as profound and deep and meaningful and wonderful, but ultimately something external to God's being that he's sharing with us, right? Um, then I don't have this problem. But if I understand that what he's doing is he's actually sharing himself, then I have the problem. How can I, who don't have the capacity to be infinite, receive his infinite being? And yet that's what the Altar is saying. It happens every time we do a mitzvah, every time we study Torah. That needs to, that's the question here. Right? Although he is infinite and the will and wisdom are infinite, and there's no way a finite being can grasp, comprehend, or receive that in any way, how can this, how can this actual connection be achieved? When the Altar does, he answers this. It is in this connection that it has been said, when you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed is he, therefore you shall find his humility. For the Holy One, blessed is he, has compressed his will and wisdom within the 613 commandments of the Torah and in their laws, and as well as within the combination of the letters of the Torah, the books of the prophets and the writings, and the expositions thereof, which we found in the Agathas and the Midrashim of a rabbis of blessed men. And all of this was in order that each neshama or ruach or nefesh in the human body should be able to comprehend them through its faculty of understanding, fulfill them as far as they can be fulfilled in act and speech and thought, and thereby clothing itself with all of its ten faculties in these three garments. So the idea is that God has, I'll use the words in English, God has compressed himself into the Torah and the mitzvahs. Now, we have, we have to do is we have to understand what does that mean? Um, and we'll, we'll start it now and we'll, we'll, we'll finish it if we need to. I see we'll have 10 minutes left. We'll, we'll finish it tomorrow if we need to. Generally speaking, there is a problem of giving somebody too much. So let's use a simple example. If you have a small cup and you want to put water in it, that's fine, but don't put too much water because if you start putting too much water, the, cup, the, the water will spill over the side, yes? And if you try to put too much water in too quickly, you might actually end up with no water because the wa so much water is going in so fast it all just bounces back out, right? Has anyone ever tried to um, fill something up with a lot of high pressure water very quickly? So there's an idea of decreasing what you're giving so that it can be received. Now clearly that's not what the altar is saying. Right? So you could have analogies like this, like you give someone enough money that they can actually process how to deal with it, right? So they can start building up some kind of financial responsibility rather than like dumping millions of dollars on them. You can give someone an idea that is within their capacity to understand them. I build their understanding so they can understand something deeper. Um, you could share a, a, a intimate thing that the person is capable of understanding um, and empathizing with without sharing too much, right? There's a lot of times where we can limit the degree of sharing that makes it actually within the capacity of the recipient to really receive it, to really accept it, to really um, take it with them. But then there's another idea, which is the idea of compressing something. And compressing something as opposed to decreasing something means to have a little thing which contains a big thing. Okay. So let's use a let's use an example. Okay. Um, the DNA in a cell, 
okay? It's that DNA, it's a little thing. What do I mean that it's little? I mean, it, 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 it's not just physically little. That's not what I mean. It's little in the sense that it's just a string of proteins in a particular order. That's what it is, right? It's basically a four-letter alphabet, one letter after another, okay? And yet, that those same four letters, you know, in a, whatever particular order they are, they contain within it um, the, uh, the, the entirety of that organism in potential, right? Because those, what, the, what, the, what, the, what those letters do is they actually guide through a very complex process how the proteins turn into the organism and then how that organism actually then functions out there in the world. Let's leave aside issues of soul and free will for a moment just to illustrate the point, okay? So you have this, right, one little piece of code, this little DNA, and that's not a whole organism, right? It's not even, it's, 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 not a whole, it's not a whole person, it's not even a whole system, it's not even a whole organ, it's not even a cell, right? It's not even a virus, right? It's less than that, right? A virus is even more complicated than, than the DNA. But what the DNA has is it has within it all of the guidance to then produce all of that complexity, right? Um, and what you'll notice is that actually how does, how does reproduction work where you take one organism and then you produce another organism, right? What is transferred between generation one of the organism and generation two of the organism, right? Whether it's sexual reproduction or asexual reproduction is beside the point, right? You have generation one of organism, bacteria, chimpanzees, goldfish, people, I don't care whatever it is, and generation two. What did generation one actually give to generation two? And what they gave was the DNA, right? And that DNA is a small thing that contains a big thing, right? This idea of compression, okay? In, in the computer science, there's an idea where you have um, a file which is quite big, and for reasons of storage and speed of uploading and downloading, you want to make it smaller, but you don't want to actually lose the information. So how do you compress a large amount of information to a small amount of information, right? Um, we've all experienced this by saying when you download something and it's in a zip file, right, and you have to unzip the file, a zip file is a compressed file. And then you unpack it, okay? Um, and so there's this idea of being able to contain a tremendous um, amount quantitatively and qualitatively in something that is actually quite small and banal. Okay. In Torah, we have an example of this, which is the Mishnah. Okay. The Mishnah is very compact, it's very small. Um, if you've ever studied a Mishnah, you know that they're very terse and very dense. There's actually quite few of them. If you had a copy of the entire Mishnah, absent commentary, just on its own, it would easily fit into a small pamphlet that you could put in your pocket. I mean, depending on the size of the print, but not that big. Okay. And the idea is that the Mishnah is actually supposed to be the same idea, that the Mishnah contains the entirety of the oral Torah. Now, there's plenty of things that are not there in the Mishnah. But if you know how to unpack and decode the Mishnah and to analyze the Mishnah, you can extract from the Mishnah the totality of the Talmud, which then, when you know how to analyze the Talmud, you can extract the totality of all the Jewish legal precedents and codes to this very day. In fact, that's what the halachic process is, is unpacking 
and what is implicit in these earlier texts, all the way back to the Mishnah, which is a very short text. Okay. And in fact, language has this kind of quality to it that there's these three basic properties to language. And language, um, you can have how thorough it is, how much information it actually contains. You can have how explicit it is, right? Um, and you can also have how concise it is, how short it is, right? And what you'll notice is that if you have something that is very thorough and very explicit, it's necessarily quite long. A lot of words. If you have something which is um, very explicit and very concise, then it generally doesn't say a lot. Right? So, but then you have things like, I went to the store. It's quite explicit, it's quite concise, and it doesn't really say that much. But then there's a way of using language where you can make it concise and you make it thorough, but it comes at the expense of being explicit. That so much is then implicit. And so this idea, this idea of compression. So what we're saying is that God has the capacity to compress the infinite within, to the, within the finite. So on the user end, on the end of the recipient, it feels like, it seems like what you're receiving is something finite. Much like you can take, for instance, a Mishnah, teach it to a small child, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, and they learn the Mishnah, and they understood the Mishnah. So Mishnah is something that nine-year-olds learn, right? And what the nine-year-old is, isn't aware of because they, they don't have the, 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 the insight and they don't have the experience is that actually compressed within the Mishnah is wisdom and truth and ideas that are far beyond their capacity to actually understand but it's all there contained implicitly within the Mishnah that they understand on the overt level. And so what the altar is saying is that the mitzvahs are actually this. They're actually the compression of the infinite into a form which is finite. And so just like when you download a zip file, right, it's say so many megabytes in the zip file, but when you unzip it, it becomes much more, right? Or um, the DNA is, you know, much less complex than the totality of the human organism, but it nonetheless contains it all implicitly. So too, the finite Torah and mitzvahs that we actually have actually contain the infinite of God. They're a compression of God. And the reason the altar says is that, he's, that he's doing that is in order for us to be able to partake of God, us to be able to connect to God. In other words, that God does not just want to um, keep himself for himself. He would like us to also be able to have the opportunity to be with him. And that requires putting himself into a form that we're able to latch hold of, we're able to be receptive to. Okay. Now, he associates this with the trait of humility, which is something we'll talk about in the next class. Why is this specifically associated with humility um, as opposed to some other attribute, like, say, generosity or something like that? But we'll discuss that in the next class. Any questions before I sign off? Thank you, Rabbi. You're welcome. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you.